0: I'm Bonnie Glazer, director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power podcast, we're discussing the Department of Defense's 2020 annual report to Congress on China. Under the instruction of Xi Jinping, the Chinese People Liberation Army is implementing major defense reforms. And at the 19th party Congress in 2017, Xi Jinping set ambitious milestones for the PLA including the goal of becoming a first-tier military by 2049. The PLA is also playing an important role in China's overall geopolitical strategy. For anyone seeking to understand China's national and global ambitions, it is essential to examine the evolving role and capabilities of China's military. On September 1st, the Department of Defense published its 2020 Annual Report to Congress entitled Military and Security Developments Involving the People's Republic of China. The report runs 200 pages and has many important new findings. To discuss the report and the trajectory of Chinese military developments and national strategy, I'm joined by Chad Subragia who is Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for China in the Office of the Secretary of Defense. In this capacity, he's responsible for advising senior DOD leadership on all policy matters pertaining to the development and implementation of defense strategies, plans, policies, and bilateral security relations for China. And I'd like to begin by welcoming you, Dasty Sobragia, and congratulating you on a very informative and balanced report.
1: Bonnie, thank you. It's really our pleasure, as I mentioned, and certainly on behalf of the entire DoD enterprise, who who really is behind the report, our deepest appreciation for this opportunity.
0: Well, let me start by asking you about the changes that you made in the report this year. The structure, the topics are somewhat a departure from prior years. So why did the Department of Defense make so many changes in the report and particularly in the framing of China's national strategy?
1: Yeah, really, for a couple of reasons. This is really a reflection of Secretary Esper's. Uh, he's given very specific guidance, certainly in concert with the National Defense Strategy, which prioritizes China is the Secretary has challenged the entire enterprise to deepen its understanding of China. And so this is one element that reflects aspiration. So for us, as we moved forward across the last year, it was to really concentrate on uh, moving away from simple caricatures of China and its strategy and going into certainly a, a deeper dive on authoritative and original source documentation of China, how it thinks, how it talks about itself, and expressing that out that i think helps inform what has always been a, you know a very good document particularly in terms of details of chinese weapons or capacities But to try to add to and provide a larger, broader strategic context that helps inform the drivers of why those numbers in later chapters actually change. And I think that does a couple of things for us. One is it certainly helps explain those numbers, but also offers an understanding of just how consistent and long term China's strategy is so that it might inform how things might change over time
0: the issues that receives a great deal of attention in the report is China's military-civil fusion project. I did an earlier podcast on this topic, and I think it's also extremely important. So I wonder if you could talk a bit about how this military-civil fusion project fits into China's overall national strategy and what its potential implications are even beyond military modernization.
1: It is important. And we did uh, try to provide additional depth and clarity on that. It's an increasing topic within the community of China watchers and certainly within China itself. As most who are familiar with this at all understand is China's military civil fusion is not necessarily new. It's a longstanding endeavor. But what has been change recently is just the degree to which it's matured, the clarification of what it embodies, how it interacts, and how it is integrated into China's larger national strategy. So certainly within the last few years it's been elevated as the military civil fusion development strategy, one of the named developmental strategies that China has to a national level strategy, as many Chinese writers themselves contend, it serves as a bridge between their developmental strategy and their national security strategy. And in this way, it directly connects into certainly all aspects of uh, China's security strategy, including their military strategy. So there's an intimate connection here. One of the things certainly as you look at it, it's, it's almost always associated with the Chinese framing that they call the National Strategic System and Capabilities. There was elements of that in the 19th Party Congress in Section 10, where it talks about the military. So it's always been intimately integrated or associated with the PLA or China's national defense here recently. That by itself merited greater scrutiny and attention. I think that what I can call to attention in this year is I think that there hasn't been as broad or a deeper exploration of exactly what military-civil fusion strategy entails, how it is composed. And so we tried to draw that out in a little bit broader uh, aspect. And I think we succeeded in that. The important piece to note is I think that Early views of that were simply as kind of a tech transfer or some kind of collaboration between defense industry and the defense establishment or the military itself, when in truth, it actually has broader underpinnings and probably more consequential than we often look. It it certainly merits more study. Hopefully, the report helps aid in that research and uh, further exploration.
0: One of the areas that I think China watchers are debating is China's intentions toward the international order and what Xi Jinping means by leading reform of the global governance system. And there's an interesting statement in the report, and I'll quote it. It says that the CCP views the global governance system as, quote, antithetical to their socialist system and an intolerable constraint on their strategic ends. So what does this mean as far as the PLA's role is concerned? And how does the foreign policy goals of Xi Jinping then connect with the role of the PLA and its military strategy?
1: Yeah, again, another great question. And certainly one of the drivers for us to expand the initial chapter, which draws out hopefully a little bit more in depth all aspects of China's national level strategies and the downstream elements of foreign policy, military defense policy and other policies. The critical nature of China's foreign policy is certainly it's undergone significant change like most policies have in China under Xi Jinping. And great clarity. So based on the Central Foreign Affairs Working Group from several years ago, they started to form a new foreign policy concept and structure with goals, long-term end states and so forth. Now deemed in in English, they call it the community with a shared future for mankind as their goal and the actual foreign policy itself as major power diplomacy with Chinese characteristics in a new era, quite a mouthful. But what's interesting is not just how, A, more codified that is, is that we see that expressed out through basically all aspects of diplomatic outreach, even economic outreach. But for us, in particular within the DoD, is is we're seeing this highly reflected in terms of the PLA's own growing military diplomacy, as it says, its own military discourse system on the international stage. In the past, as you and others may be familiar with, is oftentimes there was great divergence between the Ministry of Foreign Affairs or China's foreign policy community and its military community. But that, at least at the strategic level, that is no longer the case. It's very aligned. The messaging is highly integrated. And we routinely see that not only are they parallel in their messaging and efforts, but often synchronized in how they work in conjunction with each other between actions and messaging and diplomatic activities. So we felt it was really crucial is if you're going to understand the Chinese military, you have to understand how they fit in with the broader national strategy. And in this case, a singularly important element of that, which is their foreign policy structures and goals. And of course, we thought we took a, a good approach to this. And it's, as with many other things, merits uh, further scrutiny and analysis.
0: The Belt and Road Initiative, of course, is uh, Xi Jinping's flagship foreign policy. And despite, I think, some problems in the beginning years, it continues to be implemented, and the Chinese are putting a lot of resources into it. And it certainly presents the possibility of providing means of projecting not only greater Chinese influence around the world in the future, but also projecting Chinese power. So could you talk a little bit about how the PLA fits into this BRI strategy and whether the Defense Department envisions China establishing more military bases around the world? We know that they've already established one in Djibouti. There's been some Reports that there might be others, but what does this look like?
1: That's a really great question, and certainly one that has drawn our attention, and we're continuing to put more effort into understanding that. The report itself does talk about where China has indicated some aspirations for overseas uh, facilities or bases, in addition to what they've already established in Djibouti. It seems pretty evident that they have a great intention to exercise on those. As China's military activities, particularly as they have received new tasks and missions to have a much more prevalent prominence within the international community and on the international environment is they have to go out and about. That's one of their new tasks. And to be in direct support of their overarching foreign policy goals. So both of these efforts to include BRI, which often serves as kind of a pipeline or a guidepost about where they might have to prioritize where the PLA go, they certainly talk about that. So if you actually map some of the areas where the Chinese are interested or thinking about going overseas or devoting more time, it maps actually very closely to where they have large, where some of the, key lines of effort are within the BRI. There's some connection there. It's equally as evident that this is not fully mature yet. The Chinese are still undergoing reforms from 2015 and portend to have another round of reforms that will probably start delineating the exact auspices and actions and requirements for how they would control and deploy and project power of the PLA overseas. So I think that you'll see some in the near term here, a little bit more clarity on that. What we certainly caution internally here is as you see the Chinese go out both to support BRI, to safeguard it, and also help amplify the developmental and aspects of it, and in conjunction with their foreign policy goals, is that these won't necessarily be done in a practice that mirrors the United States or any other nation. Is that it'll be done in a manner that is consistent with China's national aspirations, their own security and military culture, their foreign policy culture. So there'll be some changes to it. They might not have as large of bases. It may be in more places. It may have different aspects of security cooperation, or even contracted security that goes out. More collaboration, with host nations to build up their forces. But there's certainly a very clear trend line here and specific tasking to the PLA to begin the development of those capacities and to work on that. And, And those are already underway.
0: I found the section of the report on nuclear weapons very interesting. We know that China, of course, has a small number of warheads, at least Presently, compared to the arsenals of the United States and Russia, and many of the prior estimates have been uh, in the low 300s and some much higher. But the DOD report estimates that China's nuclear weapons stockpile is only in the low 200s. And then a few other things I found interesting was that the report states that China plans on doubling its nuclear warhead stockpile over the next decade and is in pursuit of a nuclear triad. And I know that has been covered in, uh, in prior reports. So maybe you could talk about what the implications are for regional stability, maybe global stability as well. And overall nuclear deterrence, we know that the Trump administration has been calling for China to participate in nuclear arms reduction talks. So far, the Chinese have not picked up on that offer. And then one other small element that was mentioned in the report is the assessment that China's building a silo-based nuclear force for launch on warning capability. So maybe if you could talk about some of the implications of these developments that the report looks into for China's nuclear strategy and what it means for the United States
1: and the rest of the world. Oh, of course, another good question, and certainly one we recognized that was going to draw some attention. I thought it was important to actually put a number. We have not done that in the past. Something that we did not anticipate, I was actually reading a lot of Chinese press about the report and certainly the commentary of the public, who I think they felt the number was artificially low. The truth is, is this is the estimate that we have. And and we also certainly caution that the number is important. It's one of many different aspects of their nuclear weapons development that you should look at, but it's certainly not the only one. The numbers really should be seen or viewed in the broader trajectory of where they're going. Certainly, that's one of the explanations for the expanded Chapter 1 on China's national strategy, and in particular, the, the direction to the PLA and where Xi Jinping and the Central Committee have directed the party to be at are the People's Liberation Army to be at both at 2035 and by mid-century, which is to have a world-class military. So in that context, it's, it's about the trajectory of where these forces might go, not just the number itself. What we have seen and with their stated aspirations for the pursuit of a triad is is that they're modernizing in many ways. So the infrastructure, the capabilities, the technological sophistication of their systems, how they're integrated into command and control, how they support broader national aspirations, those are all important elements that we have to make sure that we look at. As for the launch on warning, these are aspects of Chinese nuclear doctrine that we just simply need to talk to the Chinese about. Uh, How do they think about this? What does deterrence look like and what does it mean? As the Chinese military increases its own capacities, As certainly as China gets stronger, and as they've demonstrated very clear intentions to build out their nuclear forces, these are things that remain critical for us to discuss. We'll raise that with them, of course, at every opportunity that we can. And we think it's imperative to do so. These are not small things. These are big things. And always will be very attentive to this and plan on doing so here in the near term.
0: Since 1996, the PLA is focused on developing capabilities to invade Taiwan. And rather than ask you whether they've achieved that goal, I'd like to ask whether you think the PLA believes it has the military capabilities to seize and hold Taiwan. Do you think that they... Believe that they're ready to do so if the top leadership calls upon them. To take Taiwan? And if they talk about deficiencies, what would those be?
1: They do. That's a great question. It's certainly one that we face every day, to include from our own leadership and others. The mission of any defense department or defense ministry is to always assess risk and try to provide the clearest picture that we can. What I can tell you very certainly is from the Chinese is that it's not always a question about whether they can or cannot conduct any kind of course of uh, action or in this case, I've had several occasions where the Chinese military will look us in the face and, and just tell us, like, understand that we may be compelled to go to safeguard against the permanent loss of a national interest, whether we actually can succeed or not. So there are certainly conditions under which the Chinese would apply the use of force and not necessarily have full confidence that it would succeed in the totality of its strategic political objectives because there's other requirements and objectives at play, probably not least of which is the credibility or the authenticity of the Communist Party leadership for such an important issue such as Taiwan. In that case, there's other aspects of this that merit attention too, one of which is 2020 is an important marker, not just for the report itself, but also in context of China and specifically in context of its own military markers that it has laid out in front of it. 2020, by their own voice, is the end of the period where our approach to warfighting will be mechanization, and it begins a period where they will pursue through 2035 to basically achieve a modernized military force. That is often defined in their own writings as an informationized force. So from 2020 on, they will increasingly undertake efforts to reform their own military to fight this new kind of advanced warfighting approach. What that means for the Taiwan condition is... It's not just the sheer count of numbers or ships or planes or activities, but also the degree to which the Chinese are able to adapt and or adopt new warfighting structures. In the case of the PLA, they've been given a mission by 2020 to be able to conduct a full-scale amphibious assault based on the leadership decision, and they stand, I think, ready to do so. Their confidence level is probably not as I think any militaries would be, as you'd always want to have. Much more than you face. I don't feel that they have full confidence, and, and that's probably most prominently reflected in the fact that they're still undergoing reforms to develop the high end capacities, joint force structures, and actions, and command and control, ISR, and other capacities that would make them a true large scale or great power military force. So they still have a ways to go, but that shouldn't undermine that there's still tremendous risk there, and it, and it requires our daily attention.
0: You mentioned that you've already read some articles that the Chinese have written uh, about the report. And I wonder if you could address the kind of reaction from China that you're hearing and what you expect. And is there really a possibility that if you have the opportunity to sit down and talk with the Chinese about the report in the way that you just suggested, that this would provide a means for better understanding of the PLA? Would they critique it in a way that could be constructive? Has this been done in prior years? So has the report, just like the Chinese defense white paper, I think provides an opportunity for greater dialogue and maybe even narrowing misunderstanding and clarifying some things about intentions? Are we able to do this with this report as well?
1: I'll just start with some of the Chinese reaction. I think some of it would be as you would anticipate, mostly because you can't separate the report itself from the broader context of contemporary or certainly current U.S.-China relationships writ large or even defense relationships right now. So, it's going to be viewed through that lens. I think that's reflected in both the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the Ministry of National Defense's commentary on it, which was pretty short, certainly not positive. It was hurled accusations of it as Cold War mentality and filled with air, none of which that they specified. In fact, I would challenge them to specify what the errors are just simply because so much of it is actually authoritatively sourced. That might put them in a contradiction that they might not favor. That being said, we are very interested and in fact, it forms a core element of some of our defense relationships, which is, is to deepen understanding. We think that that's important. That's a central aspect of risk reduction and crisis communication. We have undertaken efforts in the past when they have complained about the report to to offer up opportunities for them to send their experts over and help us write the report, which, of course, they have declined. That will always remain a standing effort, and we'd be glad to have them to come over and talk to us about where we might have errors. I think that would be important for us. What we have started, and I can give at least the expression since I've been in place here in the department, is last year we hosted a delegation from the PLA who did provide briefs out as part of our risk reduction confidence building measures on their 2019 defense white paper. We have offered up a similar briefing to the PLA on this report. And I think it would be important. I suspect that they'll uh, agree to it. And I'd love to have an opportunity to sit down and talk to them and share with them how we think about it, what we see, what we view as important or not. And uh, if there's any errors that they can help correct, of course, that'd be better. At the end of the day, this is a report to Congress, and the intent is to provide the clearest and most accurate picture that we can.
0: The U.S. and China have a defense link, essentially a hotline. But I think concerns persist about the absence of reliable crisis communication mechanisms. And Defense Secretary Esper has spoken about this publicly and apparently also raised it, I believe, with his Chinese counterpart. So what specific steps need to be taken to improve crisis communications? And given the nature of the Chinese political system, is it really possible to put in place reliable means of communicating in a crisis that would aid de-escalation, and crisis management?
1: Yeah, of course, another great question, certainly one that's central to our office here. We always have to remind we have a great deal of experience here, and certainly we leverage the experience of the community of China expertise that that's very strong, certainly within the United States and other places. But there's always a danger to that too, which is that you can fall into the trap of making assumptions that past Chinese behavior or approaches to issues will remain constant. Now, we have to be cautious because both by the design of their own governance structures and their own security and military cultures have downward pressures on wanting to be fully transparent. They feel like they're behind and that gives us an advantage, as they've said to me. That being said, there's also certainly some indications where they're starting to recognize that as China now goes from being basically an insular military to one who has to project out under the global stage in a more powerful and present way, is that there's more opportunities for crisis to emerge. There's more interactions and deconfliction that might have to happen, and so there's signs that they may be interested in further developing those capacities. And it's going to be a struggle between the inherent opacity of the Chinese system itself and certainly the necessities to avert escalation or induce additional risk. And so what we have certainly proposed to the Chinese is to help to try to put into place risk reduction mechanisms and both pathways and intentions for crisis communications for the future. As I explained to my counterparts in Beijing last uh, January is that, you know, at the end of the day here, especially with the trajectories of both countries, is we're going to put these practices into place. And we're either going to do this in crisis, or we're going to do it when we're not in crisis. And obviously, the preferable course of action is, is to establish a good foundation and best practices between the two countries that hopefully can avert crisis. I don't think either country has a desire or aspiration for crisis or conflict with the Chinese. And, and there seems to be some early indications that the Chinese are thinking through that and a bit welcoming to that. So time will tell. There's going to be a lot of discussion to be had here, but it's a problem and uh, we need to resolve it. But the, that's what we're all going to work very hard to do.
0: Last question that I'd like to pose to you is about the prospects for a visit by Secretary Esper to China. I know he's talked about it publicly and also about the messaging in the article that was published in the Wall Street Journal at the end of August. What is the main message that Secretary Esper is putting out? And is he trying to signal any shift in policy toward China?
1: As to the Secretary's visit, there's a longstanding precedence for secretaries of defense or leadership from the Chinese military to visit the United States or counterpart visits back and forth. We haven't had one for a while. Secretary Esper certainly has indicated that one of the goals is to visit China and sustain channels of communication. That's been shared by the Chinese side and reported by both sides. We'll see what it comes to play here in the next few months. There's, these things are always conditions-based, but I know that the Secretary himself has a very uh, clear vision about what he anticipates needs to happen and the conditions that needs to be set. We have to make sure that we're communicating that effectively to the PLA side. As is noted in our own principles for defense relations, Is to pursue a constructive and stable and results oriented defense relationship with the Chinese that centered on crisis communication and risk reduction, areas of cooperation where the interests of the two countries align. And we've seen elements of all that during both of the secretary's calls to his counterparts in China. There's a little bit more work to be had there. As for the secretary's op-ed, there's no change in the policy, certainly for China as is encapsulated or derived from the National Security Strategy and certainly as the Secretary reflects through the National Defense Strategy, Those have remained consistent. What the department is certainly doing is working on very hard on the implementation of the national defense strategy, which does prioritize China for all the defense relations principles that I just noted, but also to maintain the advantage that the United States, particularly the defense department, enjoys. So I think what the secretary's aim here is certainly to draw out with greater clarity and distinction just about what the importance of China as an issue. And then certainly for our allies and partners. To have them understand what the consequences are of getting this wrong and why there's a necessity to get this right. And so a lot of his points, certainly over the last few months, have been oriented in that direction, which is to make sure that we're talking and collaborating because we know that being unified with our allies and partners globally is certainly the best way to execute competition with China and certainly a central feature of the national defense strategy.
0: Well, I'd like to thank you not only for talking with us today, but also for your service to our nation and congratulate you again and the department on a very, very informative report to Congress this year. And we wish you best of luck in the future. And uh, thank you, Dasty Sobradio, for joining us.
1: Uh, Bonnie, thank you. Certainly thank you to all of CSIS and, and really all will provide my appreciation on behalf of the team here in the Defense Intelligence Enterprise who really formed the bulk of this work.